0: Hi Sarah. Hi Alison. Spotlight on
1: France is back. Yeah, and I wanted to start by asking you about dishes. Mm. So, who does them at your house? Is it you or your husband? If we're both at
0: home, I do the dishes, he does the drying. I hate drying. <laughs> But as he's at home more often than I am, then uh, he often does both, actually.
1: Okay, so what about like making doctor's appointments or planning birthday parties or that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, all doctor's appointments, everything to do with the kids except birthday parties is (laughs) him. Uh, Social engagements and holidays, that tends to be me. And I have to say most of the household chores, but he does do a lot of cooking.
1: Mm, Okay, so well, so in my house, we talk a lot about this, really about who's doing what, who's doing the laundry, who's doing the dishes and actually even more so who thinks about what um mm. and that that part's actually quite important cuz you know, we've heard about this idea of, I guess it's called the second shift, where it's women, mostly women, you know, who go to their real jobs, quote unquote, and then come home and have to do all the household work. Again, not always just women, but most of the time, it's women. Um, less familiar is this idea of the mental work behind running the household. And it's a concept that's been called the mental load, or in French, it's called la charge mentale. Now, the concept's been around for a while in sociology circles, but it kind of got popularized, couple of years ago here in France through an illustrator. She goes by the name of Emma and she drew a comic strip called Fallet Demander, translated into English as You Should Have Asked, and it explains this mental load. Yeah, there's a
0: drawing of an exhausted looking woman in a big baggy sweater in the kitchen. There's something bubbling over on the stove, uh, two kids looking washed out, and this guy comes in all fresh-faced and kind of says, no, but uh." You should have asked. I'd have helped.
1: Yeah, right. I was intrigued how she managed to explain what really is a, a pretty complex subject, you know, it involves sociology, psychology, feminist issues in a, in a pretty straightforward way. Um, it turns out Emma is not originally an illustrator. She's actually an engineer. Um, she's in her 30s now, but she started drawing to express herself a few years ago after she had what she calls kind of a political awakening. Um, she was in her mid-20s. She was a new mom experiencing sexual harassment at work. And she told me that what
2: she did was start to read to figure out what was going on. I started reading about feminism and anti-capitalism and I understood two things. Uh, It is that life is harder for women and life is hard at work even if you're uh, an engineer. (laughs) What I discovered was so logical for me and I felt like I suddenly understood everything in the world. Uh, What, What were you reading? Mainly blogs, but also some authors like a French artist named Virginie Despont, who talks a lot about uh, those subjects, and a lot of articles about revolution, anti-capitalism, anti-racism, and feminism. So these are big ideas and trying to make sense of the world. How did it become, okay, well, the way I want to talk about this is illustrations? I need a way to be heard and when I was talking with people I wasn't heard. I'm a woman, I have not a loud voice or whatever so people didn't listen to me so uh, I thought I have to find a way to be listened to uh, which is not talking. I realized quite quickly that drawings were more seen on the internet. People click on pictures, on comics, more than the, they click on articles. So you started drawing and the subject that went viral and that really got you
1: known was this idea of the charge mental, mm-hmm. right? The mental charge. Why don't you first just
2: explain what is that? So the mental load is the fact that mainly women are the household managers. Today, maybe uh, in some relationships, uh, tasks are equally shared. Everybody does the dishes and the laundry and, you know, everybody shares the household tasks. I don't think it's uh, like a 50-50 thing, but maybe uh, 40-60. Well, it's better than our parents. But uh, the responsibility is not shared. It's always women who think about what must be done. How I have to plan uh, shopping, I have to buy new clothes to the kid, I have to book a doctor appointment for the kid. So
1: even if the man in the relationship ends up doing it, it's the woman who has to think and say, hey, can you go do this for me?
2: Yes, it's a different thing to do chores than to plan them. So you start researching
1: this, and looking into this, and deciding to tell the story. How did you decide who was going to
2: tell the story visually? In my comics, I start with a story. Uh, Sometimes it's mine, sometimes it's a friend's story. In this story, it's uh, the story of one of my uh, colleagues who invited me uh, for lunch. I guess. And when I came to her house, she was making everything. She was thinking about making the kids eat, doing the lunch and managing everything while her husband was sitting on the couch and just opening the bottles and making conversation. And this is something you saw this and it struck you? Yes. I wasn't in a relationship. And when I saw this, I thought, how does she accept this? I would never accept this. (laughs) But when you're in a a relationship, the construction is very powerful and you tend to reproduce what you saw with your, your own parents and what society tells you. It tells you that, okay, today women can work, but their place, their main place, is still the house and men can take care of the kids, but their main place is work and earn a wage. So you decided to tell the story
1: of your friend and then with lots of research supporting it and, and explaining this charge mentale. And it really struck a nerve. I, you know, People started reading this in France, shared it all over the place. Do you think it got a real conversation started in France about this mental load?
2: A lot of men wrote to me to tell me I didn't realize this. Those are feminist men who think they are equally sharing the tasks, but they realize they were not uh, sharing equally the mental load. I think this is a small part of humanity who, who thinks about getting better about this. And to change things, for a lot of people, you have to change society. The frame around us and not uh, how we behave in the relationship. When you were doing this one in particular, but all of your subjects, When you're doing it, you're like, this is the
1: medium. This is the right way to be telling the story. Or you sometimes feel like you're limited by the illustration?
2: I sometimes feel that I'm limited because illustration takes time. So sometimes there's something happening and I would like to talk about it because I feel like the way it is presented in the media is not uh, correct. But it would take me so much time so I would just like to make a video or something. Then I come back to the talking things and will people listen to me? I don't know. (laughs) what what are some of the things that illustration allows you to do that you know just writing wouldn't drawings allow me to make some absurd things like a walking clitoris or making politicians say things they didn't say so that i can use sarcasm and I, i use it a lot to make things talk. (laughs) And uh, it is a good way to explain uh, things. So, yeah, it's a good tool for this. Did you grow up uh, reading comics, bande dessinée? A little, but I'm not a big fan. Uh, I'm rather into written books without pictures. But I like comics. Uh, In France, It's complicated because comics about politics and adventure or science fiction, it's a men's world. They're really male-dominated. Yes. And when I started doing comics about politics, I received a lot of aggressivity and uh, threats from men artists. Women are allowed (laughs) to do comics if it is for kids. And if it is for uh, everyday life, like you can talk about your life, about fashion or whatever, if you're a woman, if you start doing politics, it's hard to have a place.
1: So I guess comics is not just one thing in France, because on the one hand, you have the stuff for kids, you have like Asterix and all that, and then you have the more political stuff. Who are your inspiration as far as
2: women? About comics, my inspiration is mainly Penelope Bagieux who did the comic Les Culottés about powerful women. Another artist, she does photo construction about politics. Her name is Claire Fegre. She's very funny, and I realized that uh, when you you do pictures, comics, and you make it funny, people tend to listen to you.
1: (laughs) So you've done a lot of stuff on the mental load and, and women's issues. You've written about current events. You've done stuff about the environment. Ultimately, you have obviously something you want to say. This isn't just, oh, I want to draw something. Mm-hmm. What would you like all of
2: this to conclude with? I think my work kind of follows my political education. <laughs> so when I have a look at all my books, uh, we see this in my way of seeing and thinking about things. As a revolutionary, my job is to give some information, to talk about it, to say, okay, what the world could be. I- I'm not like teaching. I'm just discovering things and as soon as I discover them, I do comics about them. So the comics are a way to interest people into the subject but I also offer to read some further articles and further information because in a comic you can write everything. I don't think that I alone will change the world so I think that I feel like I can just add a stone to the construction of equality, towards equality. Emma, she's feisty, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> she is, and she, she does a lot. I mean, on her on Facebook, on her blog, she
1: really does drawings. As soon as she has something to say about something, whether it's about a reform in the labor law or um, doctors going on strike, I mean, she's quite left wing, and her politics are really obviously there. Um, a few of them have been gathered into books, and actually, the mental load one, the Charge Montel, has been translated in English. Um, so, if you're interested in English to to find out what <laughs> French people are seeing on, on these issues, you can look. For for that.
0: As from a green zinc coffin, a woman's head with brown hair heavily permeated emerges slowly and stupidly from an old bathtub with bald patches rather badly hidden. <laughs> oh. Yeah. yeah. So that's the opening verse of Venus, Anna de by Arthur Rimbaud. Now, I'm not that familiar with uh, Rimbaud, Rimbaud. He's taught in school, but probably not that particular poem, because hmm. the, the last line is hideously beautiful with an ulcer on the anus. Yeah,
1: probably not school material. <laughs> no, um,
0: and you'd be hard-pressed, to be honest, to find anyone to, who could recite lines quite like that. But you will find plenty of people obsessed with the man himself, Rimbaud.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and Rimbaud, um this week, uh, November 10th, uh, died, November 10th, 1891, um, and even today, 128 years later, he still receives fan mail at the cemetery where he's buried in his hometown of Charleville.
0: Mm, ever the rebel, Rambaud rejected small-town life in Charleville. He ran away from home several times. He ended up in Paris. He was known as the cursed poet you know, this tortured soul. He wrote, some people think brilliant, but certainly sometimes absurd poems that took the literary world by storm.
1: You have Victor Hugo, apparently, who called him a child, Shakespeare. I think Shakespeare
0: fans might take exception (laughs) to that. But anyway, every country needs their literary hero, don't they? His writing is considered to mark the beginning of modern poetry.
1: And Rimbaud lived a a bohemian, even reckless life, very, very counter to the norms of the time of the 1860s. Um, He experimented with drugs, with opium he had long hair, and he was gay. He had homosexual love affairs at a time when that was really not okay.
0: And he had a two-year affair with the older poet Paul Verlaine, who left his wife and his child for him, and who he himself ended up going to jail for two years after shooting Rimbaud in the arm following a lover's tiff.
1: Yeah, so very <laughs> dramatic there, dramatic life. Rimbaud actually stopped writing poetry in his early 20s, a very, very short literary career. He, uh, he then travelled the world as a mercenary, as a trader, before he came back to France, where he died of cancer, uh, young at age 37, a quite painful death. Actually, in Marseille,
0: he was pretty much ignored in his hometown for years. Perhaps not surprising, because he didn't like the town, and therefore they didn't certainly didn't like him. But then, in the 1960s, there were counterculture figures like the Doors, uh, Jim Morrison, who began claiming him as their idol. Yeah, and
1: the town then decided to capitalize on this new interest, perhaps the tourism. In 1969, there was a Rimbaud Museum in 2004, the 150th anniversary of his birth, a house where he lived was turned into a memorial space. And today it's probably the
0: man more than the poems that draw people in, the man who lived free and without fear of consequences. And now he receives so many letters that he's even got his own dedicated mailbox outside the cemetery. Sarah, you know the French are the world's biggest consumers of antidepressants.
1: Yeah, that's true. And they're also quite big consumers just of of prescription drugs in general.
0: Yeah, psychotropic drugs, so like uh, antidepressants, but also uh, anti-anxiety pills, uh, sleeping pills, and of course, painkillers.
1: We reported on the increase in the use of opioid painkillers a few months ago here in the podcast. That was in episode nine. They're on the rise in the use of pain treatment.
0: And of course, they have side effects, notably the risk of addiction. Drugs in general are also... big weight on the public health system here so other ways of reducing chronic pain or or anxiety are always welcome and it turns out that
1: well music can play a role in this. Interesting. I know music of course can make you happy or sad, but I never thought of it as actually a painkiller. Me
0: neither but in fact there have been numerous scientific studies published now to show that it can be effective. A hospital in Montpellier was one of the first to work on this and the work was spurred on by a music therapist, Stéphane Guittin, who's also a doctor of psychology. A decade ago, he founded Music Care and that does research into the effect of music on drug consumption, anxiety, sleep disorders and above all pain. He's developed an app which is now taking off in hospitals all over France. Patients listen to specially recorded pieces of music which are in what they call a U sequence in other words, the tempo changes between the beginning, the middle, and the end, and it's designed to take them into different mental states. This piece that we're listening to now is called Jamé It was written by Vin Gordon, who was one of Bob Marley's musicians, and it features Tony Allen on drums. The piece is 20 minutes long, and as Getan showed me on the computer, the tempo changes every three minutes.
3: So here's a, this is a stimulating tempo. And every three minutes, the tempo is going to go down. For example, second movement will be... Now the tempo go down progressively. I love this part. And very slow, at the bottom of the U.
0: So this is like the equivalent of a, of sedation, in exactly. a way?
3: Exactly. Here it's about 10 minutes, and the patient should nearly sleep here. And we can see on the monitoring, the heartbeats and respiratory frequencies are lower. And after, for the wake-up, progressively,
0: So, you introduce the trumpet again, the brass. Yes,
3: exactly. And the drum is coming back.
1: So, when would patients be listening to something like this?
0: In their hospital bed. It could be before, for example, going into labour or even during labour. It could be before an operation or during an operation, depending on whether the aim is to reduce anxiety or actually reduce pain. Although, those two are often related because pain is also an emotional state. Gitan took me through a bit of the theory behind music care,
3: the doctor, the caregiver, can adjust the time of the music session to the care. For example, in an operating room, sometimes the operation will last 60 minutes, so we can adapt all the use sequence on 60 minutes.
0: So are you saying this is actually a replacement for anaesthetic?
3: Uh, in the last study we, we made in the American Hospital of Paris during heart operation, we make a control randomized study with two groups, one without music and a second group with music care and in the group without music they use three milligrams of midazolam with um, medication and in the group with music care they have to use only one milligram.
0: So in what domains does listening to music have an effect?
3: So mostly pain and anxiety but we work in a lot of different department of the hospital. Today we work in pediatrics, in neurology, rheumatology and a lot of departments.
0: So it helps to reduce pain by how much?
3: In chronic pain we can reduce anxiety and antidepressant about 50%. In acute care we can reduce around 60% of the medication also in different studies. Sometimes it doesn't work for certain patients, so it's not a miracle, it's like medication, but we have maybe 90% of the patients who will have a real effect and we can see the effect on the reduction of consumption and reduction of pain and anxiety.
0: We know that when we listen to a piece of music it can make us feel melancholy or it can cheer us up, but the idea that it might have an impact on pain, do we know how it works?
3: Pain have different components, sensory, affective, emotional, and also the behavior. And the music can act on all those components and reduce pain through uh, stimulation of neurotransmitters like dopamine to stimulate the pleasure part in the brain and stimulate also endorphin, who is kind of natural painkillers. So music can stimulate all those biologic components that can help to treat the pain.
0: And so can it be any kind of music? Could it be heavy metal? Could it be soul? Could it be classical? Or are there certain kinds of music which are more effective than others?
3: Yes, the research proves that we should use instrumental music without lyrics, and there is no music, universal music, who will treat pain. Each person is very different. It will depending on the culture of the patient. So on the music app, the first things we ask for the patient is to ask him which kind of music he loves. That's why we work with Tony Allen with, with African music, okay. but also jazz music, reggae music, classical, all kinds of music. That okay. is very important to choose the music depending on the taste of the patient.
0: When you developed this back in 2009, how did the medical profession react?
3: We all know music has an effect on anxiety and depression since uh, the evolution of the human. So we just have to prove it scientifically.
0: Has there been much opposition to this approach or do you feel that the medical profession is supporting this alternative form of pain relief?
3: Today, the French doctor and community are very supportive for the um, the development of non-pharmacological treatment. And what helps a lot is research. Without research, we cannot enter the hospital. So the force of music care is to make research and to continue to develop that in the the hospital.
0: How important is it in France to have an alternative form of pain relief, given that we know that chronic pain, I think, affects Mm. millions of people in France?
3: For sure there is are patients who don't have the care they should have for treat the chronic pain. But it's very important to associate the pharmacological treatment with non-pharmacological treatment because when we're using music or hypnosis or different kind of solution without pharmacological treatment that can help a lot for the patient for the psychological component of pain.
0: And so how many hospitals in France are currently using music care?
3: So today we work in France, but also international, with America, different countries, and Europe. And we are more than 300 hospitals. 90% are in France today.
0: And you mentioned the United States. What's been the take-up over there?
3: America is a very different system of health. They have a lot of research on the effect of music and non-pharmacological treatment. But concretely, in the hospital, I never see clinicians who use music in the standard care today. So what did they
0: say to you when you talked to them about it?
3: (laughs) Yes, the first question when I explained my music care solution is how can we make money with this programme? So I'm not used to answer to this question. I really make my research to reduce pain, anxiety and medication of opioids. But today I don't have an answer how to make money with music in the hospital. (laughs) So
0: how do you finance music care then?
3: It's through our clients, the hospital buys music care for the patient. Music is on prescription. We work uniquely with the hospital and after when the patient has a positive effect he can continue at home with a prescription code. My objective is to make music like a medication, to use music like a standard care in the hospital. In France now the activity, the gymnastic is recognized like a care. And I'm sure music can be also recognized like a a care soon, a medication without side effects.
1: So it's interesting there what he says about the differences between the American and the French health system. I I feel as though the, the advantage of working here in France is that once you're in the system, like in the Social Security database where doctors can prescribe something and it gets reimbursed, Like you're in. Whereas in a more sort of atomized disparate system, say like in the United States, you'd have to negotiate with each healthcare provider. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, not all healthcare in the US is not for profit. And so people are, as you said, looking to make some money, which isn't exactly something like this.
0: No, although, in fact, by reducing drug use, it will definitely save hospitals or more generally the public health system, money in the end. And as Getan told me, music care is also having a positive effect in that it's changing the rapport that... Uh, patients can have with their nurses or caregivers. Um, so the first question, instead of being name, address, and how are your bowel movements, is more likely to be, well, what's your favourite kind of music? And well, then more, more pleasant, <laughs> definitely more human, mm-hmm. and then um, probably then generates a less stressful uh, experience of being in hospital. And so it's bringing back, yeah, a bit of humanity in what can be a very sanitised environment, and it's treating the patient in a hol- very holistic way. That's something the French medical system. Doesn't always do, but with the introduction of music therapy, it would be, seem to me moving in that direction.
1: Well, that's it for today. We're actually off next week. We'll be back on November the 21st. And in the meantime, why not subscribe to
0: the podcast? You can get the next episode as soon as it's out. Just look for Spotlight on France wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you and you can write in spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Bye for now.